Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua 6. We're going to be back in our, uh, our study in the book of Joshua. And this is indeed an interesting chapter. Last weekend, uh, our family was away. We just took a few, uh, a few quick days after the Christmas holiday to, um, to go to Gettysburg. And uh, uh, it's one of a, our family favorite places to go to kind of get away. And uh, uh, didn't read on any of the plaques or anything, any battle plans like what we're re- going to look at today. You know, imagine that. Uh, nobody encircled Gettysburg uh, or any of the towns or houses, at least that I know of. Um, so we're looking at something kind of unique this morning, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us. So let's open up with a word of prayer. Uh, this morning, I'm going to show you some slide pictures um, as we move along. So if you are at home, you're not going to be able to see them, unfortunately, um, But uh, we're going to take a look at the city of Jericho and uh, and just this this unique battle. So let's pray and we will uh, jump in. Father, we do thank you, God, as as Pastor Dennis mentioned, uh, Lord, seeing the the beauty of the snow and just a reminder from Isaiah that though our sins are as scarlet, they, they are made as white as snow through the blood of Jesus, and Lord, uh, we look at our own lives and our own sins and weaknesses and failures, and Lord, to be able to um, be covered in the righteousness of Jesus is just so comforting. And Lord, as we look at, at this unique battle and just the lessons that it has to teach us, God, would we just be in awe of you? in all of your character, in all that the same God that um, had the walls of Jericho fall down flat did an even more amazing work than that in bringing us into His family. Lord, in washing us clean and buying us back from being enslaved to sin. Lord, that's the even greater miracle. And I pray that we would be comforted and encouraged and challenged as we look over the next two weeks at Joshua 6. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how often do you tend to take credit for that which you really can't take credit for? There's some obvious instances where this can be the case. Maybe you were the one at work that was the brains behind something that was accomplished, or you did all of the hands-on stuff and only to have someone else take credit for it, and that's frustrating. Or maybe you can have a tendency to take credit for something for yourself. I know sometimes as a pastor and in talking in front of people, uh, Rachel often laughs behind the scenes because I'll say something and she's like, I mentioned that to you this week. I was like, yeah, you did. I, I, I plagiarized it. No. <laughs> um, but we often take credit for that which we really can't take credit for. There's obvious ways. And then there's also the not so obvious ways. 
The very fact that we were able to have the health to be here today, it's not something ultimately that we can take credit for, but it's something which God has given us. We're proud and self-reliant people, aren't we? I know that two instances that revealed my pride and self-reliance, I often tell couples in in, um, marriage counseling that the the first thing that revealed how proud my heart was and self-reliant was marriage. And then um, once I kind of started to see some of that, then God gave us kids. And then I saw even more pride and self-reliance bubbling up. But God knows that we are by default proud and self-reliant people. Yet every once in a while, the Lord allows us to be in situations where we are undeniably confronted with our finiteness, our limitations, our inability. Just how utterly reliant we must be upon Him. Maybe today you're sitting here and you would say, that's me right now today. God has made me come face to face with the reality of my finiteness, my weakness, my inability in this situation. That's actually God's grace to remind us of that. See, in reality, these situations, they're reminders of our dependence and need for a Savior. And we often think, my goodness, we are so in need of Jesus when we face difficult circumstances, but in reality, we are in that much need of Him each and every day. We're just being confronted with it at times more than others. Well, in our study of Joshua, the Israelites have now crossed into the land of Canaan, And just as apart from God uh, making the waters dry up so that they could get through the Jordan into Canaan, there was no way for them to get in by themselves, so now there is no way to get out. There is no turning back. That would be pretty intimidating. Have you ever made a decision and and you, 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 you knew God was leading you to make a decision, and you made that decision, and then all of a sudden reality sets in on that decision. You're like, oh Lord, <laughs> I pray I didn't make a mistake. That's the Israelites. There's no turning back. They must go forward. But here's the question we come up with in chapter 6. They now have to go forward in the land of Canaan, but How? Comparatively, they are a weak, exposed people and army. They're completely at the mercy of God once again for His provision and for His leading. And that's exactly the way we are today. So as we saw at the end of chapter 5, before our break for Christmas... We saw that God took the initiative to lead and provide as He sends His commander to instruct Joshua. Verses 13 to 15 of chapter 5. And this morning we're going to look at this first 
and primary battle in the book of Joshua. Because from this battle, an open door would be prepared to go into the land of Canaan. I showed you this picture of this map uh, before, but you see uh, the Old Testament placement of Jericho, a little bit different than where Jericho was in the New Testament when it was... uh, Uh, that we read about, for instance, in John 4. But you see how upon crossing the Jordan River, Jericho is this first major city that the Israelites would come up against and they would have to get through before they could go to the rest of Canaan. And as one individual said concerning chapter 6, this chapter means to celebrate the most outstanding instance of God's giving of the land to Israel. So this morning we are going to begin, and over the next two weeks we are going to look at five lessons that we must carry with us that we find in Joshua 6 concerning the battle of Jericho. And once again, we must be reminded that a conquering faith is not a faith in ourselves, in our own abilities, in the situations or circumstances that we're in, that we seem to have a good hold on life or we don't seem to have a good hold on life. A faith that conquers is one that is rooted in Christ. That just like we sang about, I may not know what you're doing, but I know what you have done. And that is what gives me confidence that we've already won. So we're going to look at these five lessons. And as we begin Joshua chapter 6, we're going to see the first lesson in verses 1 to 5. And just like the title of our sermon, The Battle is the Lord, similar first lesson that we must take with us is it is the Lord and the Lord only that brings the victory. We're going to look through these five verses and as we begin chapter 6 it says now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. What are some evidences here in our text that the Lord and the Lord alone brought the victory here in Jericho and the Lord and the Lord alone is the victor in our lives as well? The first evidence of this that we see in the text is number one, verse one, he has shut the city in. This is God and God alone's doing. The fact that this city was shut up inside and outside, in other words, it is completely closed. No one can enter, no one can go out. It's almost like they're under siege. This would first and foremost be an encouragement to the people of Israel. That they are so fearful of Israel's God that this mighty city is totally shut in. If you remember in chapter 2 with, with Rahab, when the two, the two spies go into Jericho, the testimony of, of Rahab and the attitude of the people in verse 
9, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Not because they heard how mighty they are, but verse 10 in chapter 2 says, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. Well, now there's another instance that would cause fear in the hearts of the citizens of Jericho. Now, very similar to the Red Sea, they've crossed the Jordan River miraculously. So you can imagine the fear. This would be an encouragement to Israel But lest we only think one-sided, this is also an obstacle to Israel. The end of verse 1 says, none went out and none came in. How in the world are the Israelites to conquer this city if they can't even get a foothold in it? Chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, it talks about they shut the gates and when the when the pursuers went to look for the spies right when they left the city they shut the gates everything is barricaded and there is no possible way for Israel to go forward so it's great that they are captivated by fear but how in the world are they to get a foothold into the city when there's no way for them to enter it aren't there always tensions in life It's an encouragement to know that we can trust the Lord. It's an encouragement to know, like again, like we sang, that the end has been written. Like we looked at in Revelation 12, uh, we are victors through Jesus. But what's the tension there? We're still in the battle. We don't know how God is going to work things out. We don't know what the situations in our life, how they're going to unfold. In fact, I've heard this said before, and and, and I'm sure you've thought it as well. It's, well, I I don't have any problem knowing that the Lord's going to see me through this. My fear is, how is He going to see me through this? It's through how, how will we... What, what doors will we have to open and, and what difficulties will we face along the way before the solution? There's a tension in the Christian life. There's a tension amongst the Israelites right now. The city is barred its doors in fear, but we have no idea what we're going to do. Like what... One theologian says, he says, the act of shutting forms a physical barrier to Israel's divinely ordained movement to take possession of the land. As with the natural barrier of the Jordan, it must be overcome. If Israel is to realize the promises of God, Jericho's gates must be opened. There's the dilemma. But again, It is God that promises to give the land, so it must be God who makes the way plain. 
Same thing in our lives. It is God that promises to be faithful and to see us through, so we must be reliant upon God to make the way plain. When we think of this city of Jericho, I, I want to read a description from you, uh, for you. Um, this is actually from the uh, Answers in Genesis website, and I'm going to show you a few pictures along the way uh, describing um, Jericho here. It says here, the mound or the tell of Jericho. Now, you're like, if you're like me, you're like, what in the world is a tell? Well, as you know, as, as, uh, as centuries passed, civilizations um, were built upon one another. As civilizations passed and then new ones came, so you would have mounds where there would be settlements that were built on top of one another of these ancient cities. So Jericho was actually built on sort of a mount. And this mount was surrounded by a great earthen rampart or embankment with a stone retaining wall at its base. So you have this area going up with a stone wall that is covering this embankment. The retaining wall, this lower wall, was some four to five meters high or 12 to 15 feet high. On top of that was a mud brick wall, two meters or six feet thick, and about six to eight meters or 20 to 26 feet high. So I'll show you the first picture here of what we're talking about or looking at you have sort of like a mound area that's like a hill, and, and in that hill would be the different civilizations that were built on top of each other, and you would have a stone retaining wall there paving the way up the mound. At the top of the mound, you would have this brick city wall that was about six feet thick and 20 to 26 feet high. Then I'll continue reading at the crest of, uh, I already read that, I'll keep reading here. It says, uh, this, this uh, brick wall that you see, it says this is what loomed, no, let me jump back, sorry Aaron, I'm confusing you, aren't I? Um, at the crest of the embankment was a similar mud brick wall whose base was roughly 14 meters or 46 feet above the ground level outside the retaining wall. So let me show you another image. So you, all, uh, you have a second wall um, there that is above the, the embankment, and then you have the first uh, mud brick wall, and then you have another one, um, and, and that would be about 46 feet above... Um, the ground level outside that first stone retaining wall. And it uh, goes on and says, this is what loomed high above the Israelites as they marched around the city each day for seven days. Humanly speaking, it was impossible for the Israelites to penetrate the impregnable bastion of Jericho. I'm going to show you um, pictures uh, putting this all together of what uh, archaeologists um, feel the city looks like when you have 
um, the two walls and the embankment all put together, there you have uh, the city of Jericho. You see, uh, the, 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 the first wall, and there would be people living um, in those areas, and then you'd have the second wall, and you would have the major part of the city. Um, outside, inside the first wall is where, more than likely, uh, Rahab's house was, that the, that the outer wall was the outer wall of the house, and then uh, within that wall, the rest of the house was built. So what do you think the army of Israel would feel about conquering this city and on top of the, the security and the outnumbering of the city, they have to somehow try to get in there. There's a second image uh, to show you of the, of the city as a whole there. Just another um, representation of the city. That'd be pretty intimidating, right? But yet, what does verse 2 say? This is now what seems to be a continuation of the discussion that the commander of the Lord's army is having with Joshua. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. So here they are, not too far from the city of Jericho, this city, because verse 13 of chapter 5 says, when Joshua was by Jericho, that's when the commander of the Lord's army came to him. There's intimidation, no doubt, even though they know that the people are fearful. And you see all of these barriers, and then the Lord says, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Wow, what a promise. Wow, how many reasons could Joshua and the Israelites come up with to say, no God, I'm just, it just doesn't make sense. I'm not going to believe this promise because I see what I'm looking at. How many times in our lives do we see things in our life and whether it's conscious or not, we say, you know what, God? I know what your word says. I know the promises of Scripture, but I also know what I see with my eyes. And I'm going to choose to go with my eyes and not with your promises. This is why Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. This would be pretty intimidating. We read past this very quickly, and we do admit that, wow, what a miracle, but when we really put ourselves back into what was going on at the time, this is pretty massive. This is pretty intimidating. But yet, in the midst of this uncertainty, there is a declared certainty. And that declared certainty is that Israel would experience a mighty victory. It's not that God just took away the walls immediately. It's not that God said, hey, guess what? I made all of the mighty soldiers within the city. Once you finally do get into the city, if you can, I made all the mighty soldiers sick 
with a stomach bug so that you can easily defeat them. No. God just says it like it is. I've given this city with the king and the mighty men into your hands. It's interesting, at the end of Joshua, Joshua is a very old man about to die, says to the, the next generation of Israelites, he reminds the people, he says, and when and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanite, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. God was faithful to his promises. And we, many times in life, have to come to the place where we say, God, I'm fearful, I don't know what you're doing, but I know that I will at some point be looking back at this and be able to declare, you were faithful, even through this. That's the hope that we have. How do we know that the Lord brings the victory? We see in verse chapter 6, he shut the city in. He clearly states that he has given the city to Joshua. And then thirdly, we see that God gives the marching orders. You see, if God gives the victory, wouldn't it make sense that we follow his marching orders and not our own? Make no doubt about it, as verse 3 makes clear, this was indeed a strange plan. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. I mean, just stopping there, we see this is already a very strange plan. Marching around the city, going around the city once for six days. This is the entire army. This isn't just one or two scouts. What's interesting here is that while this was a questionable plan, this was a very doable plan, wasn't it? I mean, even though the Israelites may not have been the most skillful, skillful warriors or the most powerful army, they could certainly march around the city. That's something they could do. Did it make sense? Not necessarily. But could they do it? Yes. Doesn't God put us in those situations so many times? Does it make sense to follow Him? Not necessarily. But is this plan doable? Yes. I find that many times when things become undoable, it is when I'm going according to my own wisdom and logic. This is a strange plan, but... Make no doubt, it's a divine plan. Verse 4, seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. We see evidences here that this is God's battle. This is not the Israelites' battle. There's a mention in verse 4 here of trumpets. 
And these trumpets would be used to declare that the battle is the Lord's and that God's people march in His name, not their own. You know what God told the Israelites back before they were ever in the land of Jericho? In Numbers 10.9, He says, And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God and you shall be saved from your enemies. You see, trumpets had many purposes uh, in the Old Testament for the Israelites. They were to, the trumpets would be blown to call the people to gather together. The trumpets would be blown for, uh, to warn of, of coming enemies, to give instructions in battle. But the greatest purpose of the trumpets, Numbers 10.9, is that these trumpets were blown and God says, it's almost like, God, we are blowing these to you that you will remember us. We are calling you. Reminding if, if such a thing would even be necessary, which it's not, but it's human description of God's care. God hears the trumpets and says, yes, these are my people and they need my help. The trumpets would be blown. There's a mention in verse 4 of the ark. The ark declared God's presence among His people. Repeatedly, we see this number 7, which is the, 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 the number of completion and totality that God is the King of all the earth. God will leave nothing undone. All of these things are indicators that this is a divine plan. And verse 5 makes us aware that this is a sure plan. It's a certain plan. Verse 5 says, When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone, straight before him. Leave no doubt about it. God says this is what's going to happen. This is a strange plan, but yet this is my plan, and it's going to secure the victory. The wording there in verse 5 when it says the, city will fall down, the walls of the city will fall down flat, uh, literally that uh, reads this, the walls will fall under itself or will fall beneath itself in other words fall straight down many of you remember what you were were doing during uh, 9-11 when the twin towers fell um, I, I was a junior in college about to take a, a bible doctrines exam and uh, and received vague news that something had happened and then later that day in chapel received the, the details of what had happened but when I read this description of the walls falling under itself, I can't help but think of, of the, the videos of the Twin Towers, how they just fell under itself, straight down. The walls collapsed. As one individual says, at the cry of the people, the wall will fall flat. 
not outward or inward, but downward. It will collapse. Wherever the people will be at the time, they will climb over the collapsed wall, each man going straight ahead. And we see just as the text says. There's a, I have a picture here. Uh, the, the picture I already showed you, I want, uh, want to focus on the right side of that picture. This is the idea of what we have here that the walls fall down flat, and remember this mound, the, 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 the broken bricks, the broken wall, would then provide a ramp up and over into the city. This is what we're looking at. So that each soldier, as the text says, can go straight before him. have another picture, a larger picture, and you can see... Um, some of the walls collapsed and how there would be this mound that they could charge up. Now that's not to say that it was just the, that small amount of wall that had collapsed, but that is more than likely the idea of what we would look at. And where Rahab's house would have been, um, even archaeological evidence shows that there were parts of the wall that did not collapse that Rahab, as we're going to read, would be spared. But the people could then go up the broken walls and they could commence to fight and to take over the city. This was indeed, this battle, the first lesson is indeed that the Lord and the Lord alone brings the victory. With man, it would be impossible. But very quickly, I want us to end by looking at one final lesson this morning. Not only do we see in chapter 6 from the battle of Jericho, lesson number one, the Lord and the Lord alone brings the victory. And the same thing is true in our life. But number two, God's people must follow God's leader. Verses 6-14. through 14. Now your first thought may go to, well, God's leader and thinking in our context, thinking of pastors and church leadership. And, and, and there is that accountability and following, but there's something greater than that. God's leader is Jesus. Joshua is ultimately a picture of Jesus. Jesus leading His people to victory. God's people must follow God's leader. Yes, human leaders, as they are consistent with God's word and God's leading, but ultimately and primarily, Jesus. So the Lord instructs Joshua in verses 6 and 7, we see that instruction is then given to the people. Verse 6, Joshua now turns and goes to the people and says, Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. This is exactly in accordance with God's instruction. You don't see Joshua here coming up with his own unique plans. And faithful human leaders are faithful to the leader, Jesus, to say, hey, here's God's word, thus says the Lord. Not simply opinions, but truth. 
We see once again the primacy of the ark of God's presence with the people. The seven priests bearing seven trumpets. We see these armed men. And we keep reading in verse 7. It says, And he said to the people, Go forward. March around the city and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. They were going to go forward in continued dependence on God's provision. We're going to see as we keep reading, the ark is continually repeated. In fact, it's repeated in verses 6 to 15, 10 times or in chapter 6, nine of which are in verses 6 to 15, showing this is the Lord's battle. God must be at the center in order for this to be accomplished. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about our Savior. It's amazing how many individuals in the Christian life can function as if nothing's wrong, Churches can function as if nothing's wrong. Families can function as if nothing's wrong. But yet God has clearly left the center. He's an afterthought. He's given the leftovers. We say with our mouths we trust and we say with our actions, it's us. But the ark is continually mentioned because God is crucial to this victory and God is crucial to our Christian lives, to our church mission. Not only that, but as Joshua says, go forward. And then he says, pass on before the ark of the Lord. It's so interesting that, that this is the same word in the Hebrew and 23 times, just from chapters 1 to 5, this word is mentioned in the context of Israel crossing the Jordan River. In other words, what they are about to do in going forward and passing over into the city is just as miraculous as the crossing of the river. Totally out of their hands. We see Joshua gives instruction to the people, but then we see the obedience of the people. Man, imagine if Joshua says this to the people. I mean, it's only him and the commander of the Lord having this conversation. And then Joshua goes to the people and says, hey, this is the word of the Lord. And the people say, we're not going to do that. That's That's ridiculous. Man, look at those walls. What if they start shooting arrows at us over those walls? But that's not the case, is it? The people recognize that Joshua is declaring the word of the Lord, not simply his own battle plan. We read of this grand procession that takes place in verses 8 and 9. Just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns went before the Lord, went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. 
The armed men were before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. Again, the trumpets declaring, we need the Lord, Numbers 10.9. The trumpets declaring, we are the army of the Lord. You have this grand procession that's just as the Lord commanded. You have at the front of the line armed men, Towards the middle, you have following the armed men, the priests who are blowing the trumpets. Then you have the Ark of the Covenant, center stage, and then a rear guard. The procession is ending with more soldiers. This was a grand procession declaring this is the army of God. Then verse 10, there's a notable silence here. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. Why this silence? Why was there a grand silence? Don't say anything. The trumpets can continually blow, but don't say anything. I believe that this shows us that what was happening, this conquest, it wasn't about the warriors. It wasn't about who was in the line. It was about reverence and dependence upon God and God alone. And they were marching not in their own names, but in His. And folks, as God's people, we are marching in His name. I can't help but think of this silence and think of Exodus 14, 14. Again, speaking of the crossing of the Red Sea. Moses is calming the people as they are seeing the Egyptians approaching and they're freaking out. You know what the Lord says? Or Moses says? The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Wow. The Lord will fight for you. You see, in our lives, we have to get over the fact that it is not about us. It is about Him. And how does He receive glory and acknowledgement? And how does He work? He works so many times through difficulty and pain to show us that it is about Him. We need not run from adversity. We need only to be still, to trust, and to move as He directs. Verse 11 says, So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Again, the centrality of God's presence. He's there with the people as they are going around the city, and then he's there with the people as they camp at night. You see, God's people must follow 
God's leader. It is Jesus that leads us to victory. Yes, Jesus uses people. But those people must mirror what Jesus says. They spent the night in the camp. They go about the city once. And then we see not simply the obedience of the people, but the persistent obedience of the people. Verse 12, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. So just like we just read, right? Then verse 14 ends this section and says, And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Now after day three, after day four, maybe this was seeming a little bit old. But they did what God commanded. You see, the very language of this text is, is, is presenting a gradual build-up to this seventh day. If you, if you talk to me much, oftentimes uh, the Rocky movies come up in conversation. In fact, uh, at the youth party, Pastor Dennis was asking people what their favorite Christmas movie is, and I naturally said Rocky Four when he fights the Russian on, uh, on Christmas Day. Well, when I, when, uh, the wording of this text is much like those Rocky movies. Because in the main fight... The fight would always start and, and, you know, there would be round one and it would pretty much show the beginning of the the, the totality of round one and and maybe a little bit of round two. But then if you watch those movies, if you're familiar with those movies, it would start to just kind of go like really quickly, like maybe across the screen we'll say round four and there'll be a clip of a punch, round seven, round ten, and all of a sudden... It would stop as they get to their corners before the last round. And what, what's the famous line of Rocky? One more round, one more round. You guys don't seem like your fans. <laughs> but we have that picture of what's going on here. That it's building to this final seventh day. That jo- uh, Joshua writes and describes in detail what happened on day one, the opening of this, uh, of this battle of the Lord. And then he gives kind of a quick overview of the same thing happened over these final six days to lead us to the seventh day, where we're going to see in totality what happened. And folks, in the Christian life, the question is, are we... In dependence upon the Lord's strength, it is God who works within you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Amidst all of the doubts that we can can have in our minds and the unanswered questions and the difficulties and all of those things, are we willing to continually follow God in obedience and dependence to Him in those quote-unquote six days? Knowing that the seventh is coming. The day of completion. That's what we're called to do. As God's people, to be faithful to our leader, our commander, 
and to realize that a conquering faith is a faith in Christ, and therefore I am not going to transition my faith into other things. Yes, God will use other things and, 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 and He will work out things in and, and, and different ways, but it, knowing it is God who is behind all of those things. And we must persevere in our faith, in our reliance, in our obedience, even in the tediousness of life, because day seven is coming. Let's pray. God, as we close this morning, we thank you for how the Old Testament, Lord, presents us with historical realities that actually occurred presents us with a history of Your workings in the past and also project forward to us of the realities of Christ and show us that, Lord, in our privileged position of being able to look back at all that Jesus, the greater Joshua, has done, to know that we, like your people of old, Lord, we walk no differently. We walk in dependence and faith, trust and obedience. The battle is yours. God, I pray for whatever that maybe immediate situation is or past event, whatever it is that stands as a great and mighty city, hindering forward growth and forward progress. That, Lord, our eyes would be taken off of the cities and on to you. Lord, in childlike faith that we would simply trust and obey. That we would look to the cross as our rallying cry and march ahead. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name.